Should we tell people that our podcast is in beta like iOS 9? This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode is sponsored by Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is a coding school with the best world-class learning experience you can find. Dev Mountain is a 12-week full-time development course. With only 25 spots available, each cohort fills quickly. As a student, you will be assigned an individual mentor to help answer questions when you get stuck and make sure you are getting the most out of the class. Tuition includes 24-hour access to campus and free housing for our out-of-state applicants. In only 12 weeks, you'll have your own app in the App Store. Learn to code. It's time. Go to devmountain.com slash iFreaks. Listeners of iFreaks will get a special $250 off when they use the coupon code iFreaks at checkout. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 114 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have Mike Ash. Good afternoon from Woodbridge, Virginia today. Alondo Brewington. Glad to be back in North Carolina. James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I've got a couple of things I just want to quickly announce. First off, if you're interested in Ruby on Rails, I know this isn't a Ruby podcast, but if you are, I just launched Rails Clips, so you can go check it out at railsclips.com. I'm going to put out two videos every week on Ruby on Rails. One will be uh, subscription only, and the other will be free. So at this point, there are two free ones and one paid one. Um, When this comes out, you can add to the list. And the other thing is, is I am looking for people who are struggling with getting started with testing Ruby on Rails. So if you know a company that needs somebody to come in and help them get things going, those are the people I'm looking for. So just let me know. We also have a special guest this week, and that is Sam Giddens. Hi, from San Francisco. You want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm a Cocoa developer at Realm. Realm is, uh, well, you all know what Realm is. You had my coworker JP on a couple months ago. But long story short, I do heinous things to the Objective-C and Swift runtimes. I also work on a pair of dependency managers in my spare time, CocoaPods and Bundler. And uh, I'm a student at the University of Chicago around all the other stuff. Very cool. Now, the topic that we have listed here is the limits of modularity. Do you kind of want to give us a brief intro to that? Sure. So being someone who works on dependency managers, you can imagine that I like to argue that people should write modular code all the time. I love being that idealist who says, you know, you should do everything the right way, and it's my way or the highway, you know, all those things. But I've seen, you know, as, as I've worked more and more building bigger and more complex applications and tools, that there's a downside to that, that there comes a time, especially when going the modular code route, where things can go horribly, horribly wrong just by doing the right things. And this was a, you know, an idea that I had after I botched a CocoaPods release a while back. Long story short, I forgot to update one of CocoaPods dependencies, released an update to CocoaPods, and CocoaPods 
stopped working. Like, you couldn't install anything anymore. And I, I said, you know, how could this happen? We run tests before doing every release. All this stuff is automated. You know, we have everything in its own gem, so things are properly tested. I, I, you know, I, I stepped back and I said, wait a second. This is happening because we're doing everything the right way. Let my guard down. Saw, oh, the test passed. You know, the release task succeeded. Everything's got to be good. You know, that, that was just sort of an eye-opener that maybe we were taking things too far. And I had to think about that. So you have all these different pieces that kind of plug in together that we use. Are you talking specifically about different libraries? Or are you talking about language runtimes? Or You know, I really think that this is an idea that applies at any level. It's most natural to think of it in terms of libraries because, you know, libraries are, you know, have clear separations and you clearly pick and choose between them. But it can happen for any sort of, I guess, dependency, whether you think of it as a dependency or not. So when you're building an iPhone app, you depend on a lot of stuff. You depend upon every framework that you link against, be it Apple's or a third-party one. You depend upon probably specifics of how the device works. And, you know, there are all these different boundaries. And normally, when you start to build an app, all these boundaries, they fit together nicely, like pieces of a puzzle. But as, you know, like, yeah, imagine you're, you're doing a puzzle on a table, and suddenly the topology of the table starts to change. Your puzzle's not going to fit together anymore. And the more different pieces that you have, the more you're going to start to see cracks between them. Okay, so you were mentioning in the, the example where you discovered this, that you were doing all the right things. So I'm curious as to, at this point, what pitfalls did you discover after sort of going through a checklist maybe and saying, okay, we did all the things we were supposed to do, all the tests are working. Where were these, these cracks discovered? We obviously weren't doing everything perfectly correct. So the way the CocoaPods release process works, it automatically runs the tests of the gem you're trying to release. But what happened was it was running the tests against, you know, the master branch of one of our dependencies, not the latest released version. And I forgot to release an update. So sort of like the, the normal development process was fine. But when it went to actually produce something my users would use, things turned out broken, in large part because, you know, I came to rely on the fact that, okay, these dependencies all get releases when they need to. They all have their own test suites and stuff like that. Whereas if we hadn't automated things to that extent, I probably would have manually double-checked everything and discovered that, you know, okay, I'm missing something. Okay, are you familiar with the five whys? No. It's the, it's the methodology. It was originally from Toyota, but it's part of the lean methodology. And when something like this goes wrong, you step back and you go, okay, why did this happen? Like, okay, because I didn't update the dependency. Okay, why did that happen? And the question is, after you go back five times, ask five why questions, you get to like, the root cause. Like, do you have any idea what that might be? And it might be, it's, it's like, okay, we had someone, a single person working on this, and no one verified that he was doing it, which is a very common mistake that you know, small, small teams can do. Sure. So in, in that case, one of the answers you could get to was the CocoaPods team is not huge, but it's not a single person either. 
But that night I was doing the release. I was sitting in a coffee shop by myself running the release script, you know, five or six times. So you could definitely say that the problem there was I was doing this alone. But to me, that isn't really an interesting answer of what went wrong, because that's so often what goes wrong. Instead, I wanted to look at it as a situation in which, okay, you know, I'm, I'm a developer. And so, like most developers, I like to give outlandish pieces of advice, because that appears to be what the internet is for, you know, telling people they're doing things wrong and to do your things your way instead. So I, I love to do that, and I was sort of following my own advice, and it became very apparent that things that fit together smoothly, or at least I thought they did, weren't really doing that. And instead of investigating what went wrong in this particular instance, I wanted to see what might actually be wrong with our development methodology, um, or what could be going wrong if we continue down this path of micro-frameworks, which have become all the rage. What could go wrong even if it looked like we were doing everything right? So every time you say right, I envision scare quotes around the right. (laughs) Yes, there's the right way of doing it, and there's a way that makes sense for what I'm trying to accomplish right now, or that fits what the business I'm working with wants to accomplish. And sure, that, that's, I mean, of course, that's hitting the problem, you know, hitting the nail on the head. There's never any right answer, but we love to come up with these sort of guidelines and call them the, you know, scare quotes, right thing to do. And uh, of course, the conclusion of this investigation was do what makes sense for what it is you're trying to build. Almost no one is at the end of the day trying to like, build up development methodologies. Of course not. You're, you're trying to build a tool or a product or satisfy your boss or fulfill a contract. Like at the end of the day, that is your goal. And everything else is just a means to get there. So my goal is to build the best app that I can and give my users the best experience that I can. At the end of the day, they're not going to care how I got to that place. They're not going to look at my code and see, oh, you know, he built this app using singletons. I can't use this app anymore. I can't enjoy it. I, of course, would argue that you can do a better job building a a good experience if you stay away from things like singletons, but that's a means to an end. And so, of course, building modular code is a means to an end. It's a way for you to reuse code. It's a way for you to better test the code that you have by splitting things out into more easily testable units. It's a way for you to be able to reason about things independently. And instead of saying, okay, you know, I have this whole huge app that does a million things. Instead, I'm going to focus on building out this this one class that does a single thing and it can do it well and I can reason about how it works. And that's all great. But what happens when you have a hundred of those or a thousand of those that comprise your app? And, you know, let's say, you know, believe it or not, there's a bug in one of them. You know, okay, yeah. you go and fix that bug. Let's say it's all the way at the bottom of your dependency graph. How many changes are you then going to have to make to get that to propagate to your app? 
Well, the other thing is, is if it's at the bottom of your dependency graph, in other words, it's a dependency of a dependency of a dependency, then how hard is that to find? Because a lot of times, you know, I look at the stack traces that I get, of course, most of my code is Ruby, but I just ignore all of the code from the framework or the library and look at what I did wrong in my code. So if it's clear down in my dependency graph, then it's going to be tricky for me to find because I'm going to have to identify that the problem is in in this library's you know dependency on this library's dependency on this library, and I'm going to have to track it down. But the flip side is, though, and I just want to address this, is that I really like modular code. I mean, I like being able to pull in a component that sends emails. I like being able to pull in a component that, you know, handles specific responsibilities so that I don't have to worry about them and then provides me with a nice API. And I like being that glue code engineer. Sure, I do too. And, you know, I tell most people that that's probably the right way to go. But it's not a silver bullet. Imagine, you know, you're working on a Rails app and you run into a bug routing to a web page. How hard is that going to be for you to fix the bug that your users are experiencing because it's in Rails and then inside Rails it's, you know, inside the router and then inside the router it's inside a specific part of the router. And all of that are layers and layers away from code that you control. How hard is that going to be for you to make the change that you need to? The answer is it's a lot harder than fixing a bug that is right there in your application code. And that's something to keep in mind. Now, this is an iOS show. I know that uh, CocoaPods, the web component of it is written in Rails and that it has dependencies on other things outside of Rails. But I'm curious, have you seen this as much in Swift or Objective-C iOS apps? Not quite to the same extent. I think the the Cocoa community is still scared of dependencies in a way that many other communities are not. Well, and you don't have as many open constraints that you do in a web application. Sure. Uh, I, I think one of the best things about being iOS developers that helps is we aren't continuously deploying things, and that gives us a lot of freedom to... We can use a library or not use a library or... And then when we when we find bugs, they're typically not yet shipped, and we can take the time to fix things or back changes out. But going back and to properly answer your question, I've seen it to a lesser extent in iOS apps, but that extent has been increasing over time rather than decreasing. I've worked on apps that have way too many dependencies where developers have said, all I want to do ever is just glue code. And, you know, they find a dependency, like they find a third-party library for practically every view in their app. And, you know, they end up with like four different networking libraries in their app because, you know, each dependency they have brings in its own networking library. And I've seen people start on apps like that and they just sort of close their eyes and sigh and they know that their first month fixing that app is going to be backing out this dependency hell. Yeah, I've definitely dealt with apps like that. But even if you're writing a lot of custom apps, like the dependencies that we are depending on change every year. We get a new version of iOS. If we're doing anything outside the bounds of the simple things, it can break. So even though this is a much bigger problem in the Ruby community, which has tons more dependencies in a typical app, we still deal with this pretty regularly. 
Oh, totally. I was just listening to uh, MacBreak Weekly, I think. I don't remember if it was MacBreak Weekly or Twit.tv, but they were talking about the iOS 9 beta, and they pointed out that some people were leaving negative reviews for apps that didn't work on the beta. And you can't release apps that are compatible with the iOS 9 binaries until they release iOS 9. And so, I mean, this is a real problem that people really are going to encounter. And yeah, it may be a problem in one of the uh, libraries or uh, something you pulled off of CocoaPods or off of GitHub that you've brought in that works great on iOS 8 and then fails on iOS 9. It's like we can barely run Xcode. <laughs> and you want us to have the app that works. Even worse, you can't run Xcode 6 at all on El Capitan at the moment. Well, you can, but uh, you're not supposed to. It just depends on how brave you are. So I'm curious because this idea sort of hits home uh, based on some stuff I was working on yesterday with uh, repairing on a project. And it wasn't dependencies, but it was actually all of our code within the in, within our, our app um, we are starting to do a, a bit of refactoring and we've had, we have some massive view controllers. And so we're going about the work of, of sort of creating, you know, lots of smaller classes with single responsibility. But I gave thought to this limit of modularity as well, though. It's just like it's becoming, it, it can become a, a bit of a maintenance nightmare, even debugging there because I'm having to jump through multiple classes to try to find out exactly where the root of a problem is. And then just organizing the code in Xcode because we've got sort of two conflicting ideas about whether or not we should organize it by function or organize it by, you know, type of object or class. Do you see the limits sort of having the same effects there within a project? not necessarily like a gem or some sort of external dependency. Yeah, definitely. You know, again, I don't think it's so much thinking about libra- in terms of libraries or components, but instead in terms of where are there boundaries between things? And it's sort of ingrained in us to think that boundaries between things are good. They, you know, boundaries make it easy to reason about, you know, the different pieces of something. But the limits that I'm sort of thinking about are what happens when there are a lot of these boundaries. And then at every one of them, maybe the code as you wrote it is perfect. You know, it's beautiful code and, and, you know, everything is right in the right place and it's great to look at. And then you need to change something. Maybe you're re-architecting what your views look like and you discover that, okay, so the way that I've organized this view hierarchy, it doesn't work anymore. And all these view controllers that I have and views and the view models, like none of them match up with the way I need them to anymore. I've seen that happen quite a lot. And that that's actually kind of how we end up with massive view controllers because it's a really convenient place to say, well, okay, I just won't have any boundaries between things. I'll put everything in one place and I know if I need to change, you know, this detail view, it's all going to be there in that view controller somewhere. And since it's in that view controller, it's not being used anywhere else. I won't break anything else. And maybe it'll be a bit harder to, to change things while I'm editing the code, but it's all there. I can see it all. You know, if I turn my 27-inch monitor sideways and use 8-point font, I can see it all on one screen. So are you advocating that we 
at least until we have a need to encapsulate something so that we can reuse it, leaving it in a view controller or something like that? No, I don't think I'd advocate that. I actually don't like being in the business of advocating for (laughs) or against things. Instead, I think it's important that we treat writing code less as the proverbial monkey bashing on the keyboard and more like an art where before you start writing a single line, you take a step back and consider, you know, where does it belong? You know, what is the best approach to take to do this thing? Rather than sort of charging in and relying upon dogma to guide you. Instead, taking a step back and thinking, what are the pros of doing it this way? What are the cons of doing it this other way? And making conscious decisions about the way we do things rather than blindly charging forward. Yeah, I think there's an arc in every developer's career. You start out just trying to get things to compile. Then you try and get things to just work. Then you get things to work. And then you realize, oh, maybe I should start refactoring some of this stuff. And you start getting more modular code. And you start doing that. And then you start overthinking everything. You know, I might want to <laughs> yep. extend this in some way. I might, this, we might want this in the future. And then you go back to just getting things to work again until you know you need the modular everything. But that's something that everyone, I think every developer goes through that arc. And a lot of them get stuck in the make everything modular, but you know there's an end to that. And if you pick the wrong boundaries, you're making more headaches. You know, mm-hmm. a typical example of that is the collection view. You know, we've got a a delegate and we got a data source, and it makes sense to split out them into their own in files. But if you do them separately, a lot of times I stop doing that. I just keep them all together because you get into weird spaces where they depend on each other for something that you know the client or the company I'm working for wanted to do and like oh then I just made a big ball of mess because I wanted to separate the delegate and the data source in their own classes but it's hard to find that line and it comes with experience but one thing I've learned is like don't start doing that until you're repeating yourself you know a number of times but there's other approaches so in that in that scenario Jim are you saying that now or do you have the delegate and the data source still separated from a view controller in its own file and just not having them separating to individual data source and delegate files yeah that's Pretty common. I'll refactor the delegate data source in one file and just call it the delegate. But they implement both protocols, but they're typically okay. not in the view controller. Or I move them out pretty quickly. Actually, it seems like a nice compromise because I find myself ping-ponging between the two extremes. Like I'll, every other project, I go, oh, I really want to separate this stuff out. And then I go back to like, no, I'll put it all in the view controller. But it seems like that's a, a nice midway point there. So, so about a year ago, I was you know, working on a, a small app from scratch, and I decided, okay, so I'm going to use this separate library that implements data sources. It's this really nice abstraction called SS Data Sources, and it was great until I needed to do something with, I think, like custom table view headers. But I, you know, I forget exactly what it was, but you know, there I was hacking on this app, and I was just trying to get it done, and I needed to like to actually get the work done. I needed to make a change to you know this data, you know this like reusable data source class that was in a dependency, and so what would have been like you know five minutes to add a custom header view or whatever it was, instead ended up being you know an hour of making the change in, in the library documenting it testing it making a pull request making sure to you know point my dependency at my fork until it was updated 
pull request is accepted, point my dependency at master, new release is made, update the dependency again. And, you know, all this was just for like the, this tiny, tiny app. And I probably could have done it faster by copying and pasting the code. You know, in the end, it, it turned out well because now everyone else gets to use, you know, whatever delegate method it was I implemented. But at the time, it was it was definitely very frustrating of, you know, it's 3 o'clock in the morning and I'm a college student and, you know, I just want to get this thing finished. And instead, I was, you know, taking the time to scare quotes, do things right. And I was, at the time, wishing for sleep and wishing I wasn't doing that. So how can you tell when you're going too far with modularity? Are there some early warning signs? Yeah. And I think that all the warning signs point to the same place. Whenever making a simple change starts to take way too much time, and not just one simple change, whenever making any change takes too long, and and you see, you know, okay, so I need to add this new label to my table view cell, and that takes you a couple of hours. Or, you know, I need to, you know, add this new field to my uh, API response format. Or, okay, I need to switch some things around. And if all those things start to take you forever to do, and it's like, well, conceptually, the change I'm making is simple, it shouldn't take that long. So when that starts to happen, it's really usually a good sign saying, okay, put the mouse down, step away from the keyboard, and... Just take a look at why simple things are turning out to be hard. And usually it's because there are just too many constituent parts to change anything. You know, I, I know we love to, to make fun of Java programmers, you know, by, by making up funny class names, you know, just by throwing in abstract and factory and stuff like that. But if you're looking through what you need to do and you see yourself, you know, having this set of classes that each interact with each other and always interact with each other. That makes actually getting work done really, really difficult. So when I see that happen, I usually like to say, is, you know, am I really getting a benefit out of this or is it just costing me time and frustration? And if it's just costing me time and frustration, I go in and I copy paste code until it's, you know, in one file or one class and I can say, okay, now I can get work done again. So I think so you stumbled on a universal symptom when something needs to change. Like when, when a simple thing becomes hard, and that's the exact same problem you get when you dump all your code in the view controller. You know, eventually, simple things become very hard. You know, if all your sim- singletons are dependent on each other, depending on how you launch your app, you can hang things and things like that. But I think that's a good point. It's like if something's simple and becomes hard and it's always hard, then it's time to change the approach. Well, I was also thinking about sort of in, in this scenario, this given, is it possible that the answer is not necessarily that the, that it's too modular or is the, or the number of abstractions or that they we can originally conceive the abstraction wrong? Like maybe I wasn't thinking through exactly that use case when that changes is becoming difficult. Then it's quite possible that maybe I didn't take into account certain scenarios that I need to or maybe as a sort of as a as a way to deal with that, maybe create a composable abstraction that's made out of some of those modular parts that deal with specific use cases. Yeah, yeah, that's often the the right way to go. It isn't, you know, if you're having a problem one way, don't make yourself have the problem the other way. So if you have all your code in 
one massive view controller, don't do the opposite and put each line of code in its own file. That's just making a different problem for yourself. I know that when Apple was originally developing UIKit as you know a framework for outside developers to use, they sort of had this general rule of, is this a thing that's being used, you know, like in at least three of our different native applications? If so, it probably belongs in UIKit. And I like to take that general idea of, is this an abstraction that's actually being used in multiple places? Okay, if so, it's probably worth the pain of separating it out and dealing with wrangling code across these boundaries. But if it's not, well, why go through the extra trouble? Why put up barriers for myself if those barriers aren't going to accomplish anything? Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And to get back to what you were saying, Alando, that you know maybe you didn't think through all the use cases for how you're separating things out. And I used to run into these problems where I overmodularized things. And I didn't, and I blame myself for not thinking of like the future use cases, you know. But that's wrong thinking because how could I possibly predict what this app is going to be like in a year or two years? You know, it, it's just you have no idea what the product owner or the business requirements will be. So it, I used to blame myself, but I realized like no one can do that. You know, just wait till kind of the patterns reveal themselves, like Samuel was saying. You know, if we're using it this thing three times, then okay, maybe it makes sense to rethink how we're doing it instead of copy and paste. But it's really hard to think through everything that might happen. Just yeah, I definitely think that that's I think that expectation because I I've had that expectation that I would just you know if I'm not making more modules then I'm doing it wrong as if you know the maximum number of module or pieces is the ideal and in reality that's really not it's sort of like a continuum where you kind of move back along the extremes and you tend to be somewhere you know in the middle or maybe closer to one side than the other depending on <laughs> your opinion. Yeah, definitely. It just it depends on whatever what the problem you're solving at the time is and what might change in the future. Some apps just aren't going to change. It doesn't matter what you do. So, you know, interestingly, you know, I went from building iOS apps for a while and those typically, you know, if I needed to do something, I could turn to a library and pull it in. And I got very used to that mode of development and now here working at Realm for very obvious reasons. We don't just pull in dependencies when there are things we want to solve. And that's a very interesting constraint to work with. And it's, it's not necessarily one I'd, I'd recommend you to use for like a, you know, your, your big day app. But like, have you ever tried to, to build something and it's like, well, this is probably a solved problem, but instead I'm going to try and resolve it. Sometimes you can come up with something that actually fits better than whatever dependency there is out there. So, you know, I'm trying to think of a of a good example of this. Nothing's really jumping to mind, but I love experimenting with stuff and rebuilding things. And I've found that sometimes you can you can get something that's a lot cleaner and a lot easier for you personally to maintain if you just build the small subset of features that you need rather than trying for the you know Swiss Army knife solution. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think networking comes to mind with that one. There are a lot of popular libraries out there, and they're good. But sometimes you, a simpler solution is really all you need for your particular case. And it kind of goes back to your point about sort of in that situation as things change, you're discovering that you've got these connected pieces, these dependencies, and they, because of your situation in your application, you're going to have some issues. And we sometimes forget that those libraries were created 
you know, they weren't created in a vacuum. They were created to solve uh, a problem that someone had, even if they've added on additional features to accommodate various scenarios. You know, they all sprung from some existing problem in reality. I think you'd be surprised how many, you know, how many features don't actually spring from real problems. Really? Well, there are lots of developers like me who will start building something for fun and say, oh, this would be a cool feature to add. And uh, I've definitely written features that I've never used myself. You know, those are always like the broken ones. I remember when I was back when I was at Tumblr, I was doing something with an API endpoint that had existed for several years, but had never been used. So you could say, well, it's, it's in the API. It's actually running on, you know, the publicly facing web servers. Of course it works. It didn't. You know, yes, it existed, but since no one had ever used it, it was totally broken. And I was, you know, lulled into a false sense of security of, oh, of course this API works because APIs always work. They always do exactly what they say they will. And that's generally only true for the things that are used. That's a, that's a good point. I feel like that's about 90% of my GitHub repositories are uh, <laughs> things I built for fun and then people started using them and suddenly have this fear that people are depending on things now that I really didn't want them to. Why doesn't this work in iOS 9? Come on. <laughs> Anything in particular coming to mind? Uh, no, not really. Pretty much all of it. <laughs> Yeah, I know I've, I've definitely written code and, and have said, if you're even thinking about using this in production, whatever in production means for you, like take a step back, turn off the computer, you know, go to sleep and then don't use it. Like I wrote a half re-implementation of the Objective-C runtime and it's on my GitHub and sure it's, it's written and it's semi-documented. And it works. There's like a test for it. But you'd be crazy to use that in production. Just the man to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, going for it. You know, there there are two ends to this like not invented here syndrome. There are some people who say, I will not use any code that I did not write. And then there are the other people. And I, I was one of them when I was getting started who said, I'm really new to this. I'm not very good at development yet, if I'm honest with myself. You know, this project has several hundred or thousand stars on GitHub. I'm sure the person who wrote this is a lot smarter than I am. And that's a really dangerous trap to get into. It's really, you know, you want to be able to comfort yourself and say, you know, you can you can pick whatever's best. And even if you're not the best, you can use code that the best developer wrote. But A, they're probably not as much better than you as you think. And B, what they were building wasn't built for you. You know, so this is uh, something I run into fairly often working on frameworks is I'm not actually a user of the stuff that I build. So I work on building Realm every day. And I'd like to think I do a reasonably good job, but I don't actually have the perspective of one of our users. You know, I use Realm through Realm's unit tests. That is very, you know, using something through its tests is very different than using it in an app. You solve a lot of different problems and you run into a lot of different use case scenarios. And a challenge to keep that perspective when designing 
like a library of you don't want to build something that's really, really great to test because guess what? There's going to be one or two people writing tests for it and there's going to be orders of magnitude more people that are actually using it like a normal person. So based on your iOS experience, what are some of the common pitfalls where people are getting too modular, like the examples? I think the number one example is people trying to create, in the iOS world, is definitely people trying to create too many different views to handle something. So you say, okay, so let's like think of how a, like a dashboard news feed type app works. Well, you know, there's there's going to be a post and a post has a header and the header has like the user component of the header and the user component of the header has you know the uh, the user profile view to it and it has a couple of labels and think how many different views you could create in a view hierarchy for that and it's only ever going to be used in that one place it's really tempting to say okay so each of these different components is theoretically separate, so I'm going to put them in separate views. And then when you go and try and change how that header is laid out, or you try and add a new label, or you try and add a new like style that the view can be in, have fun, because you're suddenly going to find yourself crossing all these different view boundaries, and you're going to wish that you did it sort of flat to begin with, where... Everything was just a, a direct sub-view of the header view or whatever it is. That makes sense. Can you think of other, other examples? Networking, as always. This is one where I think people like having extra classes to handle all the different things that are networking-related, and you end up with having like these these single use classes that end up all referencing each other to like do object mapping and json parsing and constructing network requests and sending network requests when in reality it's all sort of one component not a hundred different things i'm looking at you af networking (laughs) (laughs) you know i don't like to point out you know the specific libraries but i i do think af networking is an example of something that has been sort of cargo culted for better or for worse i know a lot of developers who have you know who are as new as i am and they've never even seen like nsurl session or nsurl connection like they don't know that those tools are ones that are available to them and, and built in they they go and say networking is af networking and they pull it in and they, they don't ever take a step back and think, you know, is there any other way to do networking? That's an excellent point. I always bring this up. I had the pleasure one time I was talking to Bill Dudney and he said that to me. He said, to just using a zero session, though, you don't need all that other stuff. He's like, it's not that complicated. Get in and learn it. <laughs> That's true. But in those developers' defense, pre-iOS 7, these thing, Apple networking libraries, APIs were kind of painful to use. AF networking was a lot nicer back then. I think with iOS 7 and SQL session, that's my default for most networking. You know, I'll just do it and it works. You know, it does everything I need to do and I've worked on some pretty big apps, so I'm pretty happy with it. So I definitely say, you know what, try just the NSURL session. Works great. So at Tumblr, we actually didn't even have the 
you know, when, when I was there, we didn't even have the pleasure of AF networking. So our API client is there, I suppose. I'm not there anymore. Their API client is, is open source and it depends on, you know, this built in-house networking library called JXHTTP that is used literally nowhere else but in the Tumblr API client, which is used in the Tumblr app. And, you know, it was chugging along fine using NSURL connection-based stuff. And that was all great until iOS 8 hit and share extensions became a thing. And it suddenly became very important to try and be able to use NSURL session. And because there were, you know, these layers of indirection, I ended up hacking in a way that the share extension could use like a different networking library. In this case, it was just, you know, a single NSURL session. But for the sake of expedience, I had to just subvert all the existing stuff because, you know, it was the end of August and we obviously wanted to, you know, be on the app store with the share extension day one of iOS 8. I've been through that pain. Whenever, what was the, the big networking library before AF networking, like ASI networking? Yes, AF. yes, it was. I think it was ASI, HTTP or something like that. Yeah, and that's right. the one that everyone used until the, the founder said, you know what, this is really hard. I can't figure some <laughs> things, things out. Use something else. And I had this code base, which was just full of this code, and I had to switch over to AF networking. And going through that is painful. So I, I feel your pain. <laughs> Yeah, I had the similar experience, uh, not with the networking library. Uh, when I first started developing, 320, uh, was, uh, popular. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I used that in the project and it was a nightmare trying to use the navigation and end up having to write our own anyway. Very fortunately, that was before my time. I, I never, I never got to experience the wonder that was 320. You didn't miss anything. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, even if you play in the rules and stick with Apple's guidelines, if your app was designed for iOS 6, you were having a hard time when iOS 7 came out. It's just just how it goes. Please don't remind me. <laughs> I <always> forget. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the big one of those that, that I had was uh, actually, again, last, last summer when we were fairly certain larger screened iPhones were coming. You'd be surprised how many variations on the constant 320 there can be in a big enough app. So I literally spent a week taking this set of constants that weren't actually constants in the Tumblr app and trying to massage them to all be relative to a view's width. And this was a case where I was cursing the fact that no one had done what could have previously been considered premature optimization but in the grand scheme of things, it was probably the right call. We did the work we needed to do as it was needed, instead of you know trying to predict the world happening. Nice. Well, we're about at our time. Any other things, questions that we should discuss before we get to picks? Uh, I'd say you know my recommendation to people after after hearing this isn't yes do this or no do that. It's uh, you know, think about what larger purpose your code exists for and focus on that and let all the other development related stuff just be a means to that end. Very cool. All right, let's go ahead and get some picks. Mike, do you want to start us with picks? Sure. Uh, this week, uh, I'm going to pick a game called Rimworld, which is a lot of fun and I would like to share it with the world because, uh, 
I want other people to have the joy of running a little ant farm, except it's not ants, it's people, and they run around and shoot stuff and grow food and eat other people sometimes if you want them to. And uh, it's sort of like Dwarf Fortress, which I think everyone might know about, uh, except it's actually like you can get in and play it without studying for getting a college degree in Dwarf Fortress first. And um, it's pretty cheap. It's one of these uh, early access games. It's like one guy doing it all, and he does a great job. And uh, it's a lot of fun, and I definitely recommend checking it out if uh, you're into crazy space things. Except it's not in space, but it's um, sort of about space. It's weird, but it's fun. Awesome. Is it, like, on your Mac, or...? Yes, it's a Mac game. And uh, cross-platform, so if you happen to run one of those other evil platforms, you can get it on there, too. Not mobile. It's uh, not quite suited for that, but uh, runs great on the Mac. Awesome. Alondo, do you have some picks for us? I have one pick this week, and it is uh, a talk at, from NSConf, Daniel Steinberg did, um, titled uh, Somewhere Between Tomorrowland and Frontierland. And I really like it because it talks about a solution to a problem using um, the object-oriented approach and then do it solving the same problem using a functional approach. And then he takes it and does a he makes a hybrid between the two, sort of showcasing that you don't really have to abandon object-oriented techniques just to embrace functional programming with Swift. The whole thing's in Swift, by the way, so um, it's also a great uh, talk. And Daniel Sniper always does really great talks, in my opinion, but this one I really hit home this week just because I'm kind of learning Swift, and I think it was, it'd was it be useful to a lot of people. Very cool. Jane, do you have some picks for us? Okay, I've got one pick. And most of you probably were not at AltConf, but they just posted all the, the streams for all the talks, or most of the talks at least. So you can check out my talk. I talked about Swift development, more practical tips. Samuel, you're on there, uh, as well as a lot of uh, former guests on the show. Natasha the Robot, Michelle Totolo, quite a few people. But the AltConf's talks are up, so you can check them out. What's your favorite one besides yours? Well, mine, of course, actually... (laughs) That that goes without saying. Of course. (laughs) And my second favorite one is mine. But the third was... Actually, I got some practical use out of it. I don't remember the name of it. It was at the same time as Natasha the Robot, but he talked about how to test animations. And he went through that, and that's always the thing I always kind of punted on. And I can give you the too long didn't read or didn't watch, but I never thought about it. Just create a category on your UIView class and just call the complete block. Oh, there you go. Your animations are testable, and you can do it. So that was a that was a good talk. Very so cool. Get a link to it. But that's my pick. All the Alcoff talks. All right, I've got a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is I've been doing the online remote conferences, and I've decided to put them up into an RSS feed and host the videos on DevChat.tv. So if you want to get them, go to remoteconfs.com. I still need to put the RSS feed URLs up. They are in iTunes, so you can go find them that way. So uh, the JS Remote Confs are the ones that are going up right now. Ruby Remote Conf Talks will go up after that. And then as I have other talks, then we'll see. So that's what we've got going on there. I also want to pick someone who's been pretty involved in my life. And I feel like I have failed in not mentioning him before. And this, you know, we pick things that make our lives better, and God has made my life better. So uh, I'm picking God. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, so I'm picking him too, to uh, come and save us. So I just, I, I really, really appreciate everything that God does for me in my life. So I'm picking him. If you're also interested in more of how I look at God and, and my beliefs, you can go to LDS.org. That is the official website for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can probably get a Book of Mormon from there. 
not the musical, the actual book. The book's always better anyway. And uh, if you're interested, they we can also send missionaries out. So anyway, go check it out. You can find out a lot about the beliefs, church leaders, all that stuff. So anyway, those are my picks. Sam, what are your picks? Okay, so uh, th- this actually isn't one of them, but of the alt-conf talks, I'd say one of my favorites was Graham Lee's about being comfortable uh, asking questions uh, as a developer. I believe the talk was entitled, I Don't Know Anything, something along those lines. So uh, I, I have a, a pair of picks, and I hope that's okay. One of them is uh, an app called Tower. It's a GUI interface for Git. And yes, I know the command line is the canonical way to interact with Git, but sometimes it's nice to be able to you know, use a mouse to select things and selectively stage stuff for commits. And so I use Tower every day. It's always open, except when it crashes. And that's great. And my other one is opensource.apple.com. So while most of the stuff that Apple does is not open source, and we have to you know, pop things like UIKit and Foundation into Hopper to see how they work under the hood, a lot of stuff is. So large parts of Core Foundation especially, and also the entire kernel that runs on OS X is open source. That's called XNU. And I spent days just reading that and trying to understand how everything works. Very cool. If people want to follow up on what you're uh, doing with CocoaPods or Realm or anything else, what do they do? They can follow me on Twitter at SE Giddens or on GitHub, which I always joke is my preferred social network. Same username there. CocoaPods has a blog, blog.cocoapods.org. Realm has a blog. And, of course, all the things I do have Git repos, so you can watch those as well. Very cool. Well, I'll give you a like and tweet about you on GitHub then. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I don't think we have any other business, so thank you for coming. We'll yeah. wrap up the show, and uh, thank everyone for listening. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash form. 